Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Omar Fernandez is the founder of Sabio Health. In this episode, we talk about the challenges that rural healthcare faces, the inefficiencies in our healthcare system, value-based care versus a free-for-service model, and the future of care delivery and healthcare. This is a jam-packed episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, Omar, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Zane. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, on this podcast. I really appreciate it a lot. Well, thanks for having me, Zane. I'm excited to be here, and it's good to chat again. And and by the way, uh, congratulations on the, what, over 1,000 downloads of this podcast. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. That's kind of crazy to me. I know it's probably not a huge number for a lot of people, but for me, it's kind of nuts. Um, I mean, that is awesome. Like, <laughs> you got to feel super stoked about that. Yeah, no, I know. I'm still surprised that so many people want to listen to me or read what I write. It's um, it's surreal, honestly, uh, for a guy that's just a random dude from Wisconsin um, <laughs> that's just talking about stuff that he's been passionate about. Uh, it's really it's really humbling because there's a lot of amazing people out there doing way more amazing things than I am. And um, it's just amazing to see like people like that um, cheering me on. So um, it's honestly, it's surreal for me. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So uh, uh, hopefully in a few years, you know, I'll, I'll look back on this and say, man, I was there in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, uh, hopefully in a few years, I'll be looking back at you and be like, man, I knew that guy and that guy is changing lives. But <laughs> speak, uh, going, speaking of that, uh, do you mind giving us a little background about you and kind of what you're working on? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll admit, I, I hate talking about myself because, you know, <laughs> this isn't about me. It's it's about what we're building and, and the problems in healthcare that we're trying to solve. But um, here goes a little bit about me. I'm Cuban-American. I was born in Miami, uh, but I, I now live in Marietta, Georgia, um, since 2006. And um, if you're not familiar with Georgia, uh, Marietta is a northwest suburb of, of Atlanta, and it's about 23 miles from the world famous Georgia Aquarium, which is smack in the middle of downtown Atlanta, which means 45 minutes to an hour away. Because I mean, it is Atlanta, you know, the place known for Coke, but also known for our traffic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, um, I'm married. Uh, we have three boys. Uh, my youngest is a senior in high school. Hard to believe. And uh, my oldest is a father. Also hard to believe. But but he's a sixteen. Uh, he's a he's a young father of a sixteen month old boy, um, and my oldest is only twenty five, which makes me a young grandfather. That's amazing. That's, yeah, uh, that's yeah. gotta be so much fun, though. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. And um, yeah, so I, I turned fifty three in December, which which when I think about it, um, and some people have told me it's, it's kind of crazy that fifty three I'm I'm starting a company. You know, people my age are starting to think about retirement, not starting a company. Uh, but no, not me, you know, um, my wife thinks I'm crazy. I'm not really sure what my boys think. Cause you know, they're boys and which means they don't think, but, um, so, so I've been in healthcare for over 20 years, um, long enough to see how messed up it is. So, you know, at 53, I'm, I'm going to do my part to, or try to do my part to fix inequities that, that exist in the system and, and are only getting worse. And especially for those that that we seek to serve at, at Sage Health um, and what many people refer to, and I happen to agree is, is the greatest generation. You know, my parents, uh, the baby boom generation, older adults, Medicare folks. And, and, you know, I get this question asked a lot by my friends and, and others, and they ask me like, why older adults? And, you know, the answer really is simple. I love my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're listening and I'm sure they will, cause I'm going to share this with them. <laughs> Hi mom. Hi dad. Love you. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I mean, you know, we, you, you see, you know, people on, on LinkedIn and, and I know I was listening to your podcast with Preston and, 
you know, healthcare gets a bad rap, but it does a lot of good things. But the truth is, is it also does a lot of bad things. And, and, um, our healthcare industrial complex is what it's a $4.3 trillion monster. It's, you know, 18% of our GP, GDP and, and climbing. And in 2021, Medicare spending alone was $900 billion. So, you know, we spend more money than any other country in the world. And, and what do we have to show for it? You know, worse outcomes. It, it really costs way too much and, and does way, way too little, especially for, for senior adults. I could not agree with you more. I think that, I mean, I think I say this a lot and I don't think people truly understand what I'm saying is the system works against us constantly. And the fact that we have so many victories inside the system is a testament mm -hmm. to all the people that work in the system. Um, it's not because of the system, you know, and that's why I kind of love what you're building. And I agree with you that the people that need the most help are the ones that get the least help. Um, you know, kind of like people with disabilities, people yeah. that are an older generation uh, that have, they don't have access to travel, easy travel, easy access to healthcare. Like it's a burden for them to just make it to the doctor's office. And that's why I was excited about what you were building uh, at Sage. And uh, I don't want to, I don't want to take your thunder. Why don't you describe what you guys are building at Sage? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the people, despite all the challenges, the, the people um, do some really amazing things. Um, so yeah, let's talk about Sage. So, you know, but first really in, in full transparency, we are an early stage startup. Um, we're mission driven. And we have a vision and a roadmap and we have really strong, you know, leadership domain expertise, but, you know, we don't have any patience yet. So, so we are theorizing, but, um, what's not a theory, um, but fact is, is really the challenges for, for medically underserved and overlooked older adults in health deserts in rural, small rural areas and in small towns throughout the U S and the South specifically, which is really our focus. So, you know, we know about 60 million people in the U.S. live in rural geographies, and uh, older adults represent about 20% of that uh, rural population. Um, we also know that rural areas tend to be older, sicker, and poorer when compared to, to their urban counterparts. And, and within these communities, one of the biggest challenges people have is access to care. Uh, much less high quality care. People in rural America live an average of three to four times further from hospital-based healthcare and skilled nursing facilities than, than people in urban communities. And since 2010, uh, there have been 136 rural hospital closures. And in 2020, there was a record 19 alone. And today, I, I think the number is somewhere around 600 are in peril of closing. So, you know, while 20% of Americans live in rural areas, rural communities really represent two thirds of primary care, um, what, what's referred to as healthcare or health professional shortage areas. So like as a result of that, um, they, they don't seek care, right? You know, it's, it's a challenge. So they often don't seek care out in the first place, which really leads to, to worse outcomes compared to, you know, non-rural residents, like 40% higher rates of preventable emissions, 23% uh, higher mortality rates, right? And so, so the challenge to delivering care in rural communities is, is that we just can't expect providers to move to these areas, right? That's not the way we're going to solve the problem. So how do we expand access in a way that's scalable and, and works from an economic standpoint. So at Sage, our plan to approach this problem is, is to enter into these communities as a, a new value-based care provider or, or partner with an independent existing physician practice or, or health system to bring um, high quality advanced primary care into the home or, or wherever seniors call home. So really meeting them where they are. So like at a real basic level that anyone can understand and the best way to describe it is that we are a mobile um, or home PCP, if you will. So we come to you. 
No, I I love it. I think that, I mean, I think the, the st- I had to write this down because I didn't want to butcher it, but you said 20% of the population lives in rural areas, but two thirds of the shortages are from in those communities. And that to me is a staggering number. And I don't think people really realize, and then you were saying that almost 600 hospitals might be uh, on the brink of closing in these areas. And I don't think people really realize how these communities are so affected. Um, and because most of us do live in urban areas, right? Like I literally, where I stand, there's two hospitals, literally five minute drives from me. Yeah. So I don't have a problem, uh, thankfully, right? Uh, but, you know, when I've, I used to work in a hospital where people used to be on ambulance rides for three hours to get to us. And it would be for completely preventable uh, things, right? Because they just didn't have access to the care. They didn't. Other thing that people don't realize, I think we also in the medical community don't realize is no one wants to see us. We are like, no one wants to go to the doctor. No one wants to go to the pharmacy. No one wants to do anything about their healthcare because they're a afraid of finding out something wrong. Also, we don't make it easy on them to utilize our services. hundred percent. And, you know, you mentioned um, ur- urban areas and, and even some urban areas suffer from, from this and, and, and like where I live in Atlanta and, you know, in the Metro Atlanta area, um, you know, last year during, during the elections, um, there was a lot of talk around um, a, a hospital closure in, in South Atlanta. I mean, it's literally, you know, it's as urban as, as you can get. Um, and, and um, you know, people suffer the same fate and have the same challenges when there's a, when there's a hospital closure like that. And, and when you talk about hospitals in general and in rural communities specifically, I mean, in most cases, they're the largest employer in the area. So, you know, the downstream impact that a hospital closure has on the community is huge. Yeah, I mean, I think somebody had said that hospitals are the number one, like the healthcare system is the number yeah. one employer in the country. Uh, in terms of like four, I think 403B employer in the country or something yeah. crazy like that. And I was like flabbergasted by that. I was like, I didn't realize that um, that healthcare employed that many people, even though I've worked in hospitals pretty much my <laughs> whole life. And it's literally filled with staff all over the place. I just never put two and two together. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think that's part of the problem, right? <laughs> is that industrial, you know, complex, right? Is the buildings and and the support and i think there's some data and i th- and i think i have some here that um trying to i had some stuff that i that i printed out that i wanted to share which kind of demonstrates kind of the unsustainable um path that that we're on um and let me see if i can find it but it, it's it's talking about sort of like why why we are where we are as far as you know costly um health care and uh it's something like 68% of, and I'm trying to find it here because I have a lot of stuff written down that I wanted to share, but um, here it is. So it says 68% of the cost of delivering care in a hospital goes to brick and mortar overhead and not clinical care. Think about that. Wow. That's, that's crazy. And so what does, what does brick and over brick and mortar overhead entail? I mean, I guess it's like the running of, of, you know, administration, right? It's how it's, it's, it's all, everything that goes into sort of keeping the, the, hospital the operation going. of yeah. the hospital versus, you know, not clinical care. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm not surprised by that, to be completely honest with you. Um, I've worked at amazing hospitals. I, there's no shade to the places I've worked at, but yeah. it is definitely apparent that, um, let's just say I'm not surprised by it. Yeah. 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 So, you know, what, what I'm saying is like, we're spending way too much money on the wrong things and, and older adults are the highest utilizers of healthcare and it's in the wrong place. And that is the, like the poster child of misaligned incentives. So like, instead of in, investing in, you know, preventive primary care, we spend money on reactive episodic care, like on specialists in, in hospitalizations in, in institutional care settings. So the end result is is what we have today. We have this four point three trillion dollar monster that delivers poor outcomes. You know, physician burnout, this moral injury, uh, health inequities, and and so on and so on. Yeah. No. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I can I can talk about this for a long time. Um, <laughs> and because it is, I think people, I think a lot of it has to do with us too. Um, I think we spent so long hiding all these things from people. We, we wanted to be, somebody had mentioned, somebody told me this, like healthcare is like the number one thing for hero complex. Like we are taught during school to be stoic in front of our patients, to have our stuff together and don't show them that we don't know, right? That we are yeah. scared or anything. Like we are taught that in school. But with that also comes with, you know, we don't share any of our problems. We don't share any of our inefficiencies because we need to be stoic, right? That's all we were told. Like, hey, the patient across from you is more scared than you are. So you need to just stop it basically, you know, but you know, then we never told anyone. I mean, it's gotten to a point now that people are realizing it, but it's, I don't want to say it's almost too late because I think anything can be solved, but it's getting to a point where people are leaving it mass and people are like so surprised, like, Oh, where did this happen? All of, how did this happen all of a sudden? No, it's been compiling. It's been compiling over years and decades um, to get to this point. Yeah. And, and, you know, then you kind of add the administrative burden that we put on, on physicians Right. Because because we live in this fee for service world where we have to document um, everything. And so, you know, think about the kind of the the patient encounter. But think about what happens before that. Think about like, you know, I got to get in my car. Um, I got to drive somewhere. And, and, and like you, I'm fortunate I live close to healthcare, So, you know, my doctor's office is literally, you know, well, again, I, I live in Metro Atlanta, so traffic. Right. But but literally it's like a five minute drive. Um, but for most people or for a lot of people, it's not. So they got to get in their car and then think, think of an older adult in particular, right? So you got to get in your car. Um, you know, let's say you, it's, it's, it's in the winter, it's cold, um, or it's rainy and cold and, and you got to get in your car, you got to drive, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes, you know, you go get to the office, you look for parking, you, you get there, you walk up, you know, you get in the elevator and you sit, you know, check in and you sit and wait. And you wait, you know, you, and then you fill out paperwork that you've done already, you know, prior to that. Um, it, and you're filling it out by, you know, writing it with a pen and paper. And, you know, for another 20, 30 minutes, they bring you in and then the doctor comes in or, you know, a clinician comes in. And essentially, it's like a nine on average, it's a nine and a half minute interaction. And basically what happens is, you know, why are you here? And you talk about specifically that, why you're there for that, and not all the other stuff that you could potentially have going on. And if you look at, you know, older adults in particular, like, you know, two thirds of older adults have two or more chronic conditions, but I'm going there to talk about specifically what's going on today. And so you have that nine and a half minute interaction, you know, they typically, they'll probably give you a prescription for medication, another one, um, you get in your car, you drive home. And, and then, you know, the, the, the clinician spends their time documenting so they can bill, right? And, and, and so they got to do this. And, and I, I equate it to sort of like going to a restaurant, right? Is, is when you go somewhere um, that's, that's pretty busy, they, they want to turn the tables over, over right? Because it is a business at the end of the day, and healthcare is. And, and so you have to see as many people as possible. And, you know, there's that formula that we know how many we have to see because we're in a fee-for-service world and we have to keep the lights on and we have people we have to pay. So that therein lies a problem. Like until we have like real true, you know, payment reform and, you know, there's, you know, everybody talks about value-based care and, and, and I think it's, it's just got to be something that's not fee-for-service. Right. It's not volume and you got to pay, you know, for value and the value that you bring. Once that mindset happens and that change happens and it's real and everybody, you know, it can do it. Not just like the big, you know, Oak Street Health and, and, and the Allidades and all these people that are that are have, you know, a considerable amount of their revenues coming from value based care. But when when the independent physician is able to do that, then you'll see a real change. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, I think value-based care is a step in the right direction, personally. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I mean, I feel, I have a, I hope that it stays, I hope the why it was created kind of stays, like mm -hmm. why, but I, I have, a, I have been jaded through the medical system and I'm afraid it's going to get gutted and we'll end up being the same spot. But I would love to hear your thoughts on value-based care because that, that is, some, you know, that's part of the model that you guys are building, right? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, when you look at our, our model, right, it's a high touch model, um, it's team based, uh, it's geriatrician led. And so when we talk about, you know, advanced primary care, you look at the patient holistically. And so it's not just kind of medical care. And we know so much of what drives um, health care is the non-medical care. It's, it's, a, it's a social determinants of health. Right. So when you have so you have to have a team that essentially is looking at each individual patient. So you have, you know, your clinicians, you have, you know, you have your physicians, your your nurses, your your social workers, your pharmacists, um, especially. So it's an integrated team. And so to deliver that level of care and to deliver it in the home or or, you know, a part of our roadmap, um, no pun intended, is, is we also plan to deploy mobile clinics. Or, or what we call our senior care centers are, are on wheels uh, that I envision will, will provide additional surveys outside of just primary care, like hemodialysis, for example. Um, but what, so when you look at delivering that level of care in a fee-for-service world, we can't do that, right? Um, so we, we want, and, and we can change kind of care-seeking behavior and, and really kind of intervene and before there's an acute need, we're in the most you know expensive part of healthcare, which is in the hospitalization. So, so value-based care really allows you to do that. But there's so many different flavors, right, of value-based care. So you have all the way at one end of the spectrum, you have this full risk model, right, where where you take complete you know total cost of care. Um, and, and the health plan in this case, you know, a Medicare Advantage health plan pays you on a per member per month basis, you know, up to, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred dollars a month per member per month. So when you're able to get that kind of, you know, revenue from, from, a from, from a health plan, then you could really kind of really impact care the way that it's meant to be. And so like at a real kind of basic level, that, that, that's, that's what value-based care is, is that you're assuming some level of risk, but you're being paid accordingly for that level of risk that you're taking on. Yeah, no, um, thank you. I mean, that's actually a really good description of it. Uh, I think when you ask people about value-based care, everyone kind of has their own like separate definition, but kind of what you mentioned is kind of the, I think the soul of value-based care. And then you, yeah. had, you had mentioned that fee-for-service, in a fee-for-service model, so, so, so there's a lot of conversation that's happening now, and I'm glad it is, that incentives don't align with outcomes in healthcare right now. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have, right? And that's why people are really excited about value-based care, even DPC to a certain point. Um, why is it so that if in a fee-for-service model, you wouldn't be able to do what you're trying to build? So think about this. So if you if you talk about like the team, right, that, that I just described, right, that, you know, those are... Re resources right and resources cost money and and when you look at in a fee-for-service world to to deliver um care you know think about what what a you know traditional kind of what what cms describes as an enm service right so evaluation and management you know you're going to get paid anywhere from like depending on it's if it's a new patient versus an established patient you know, and it's really kind of time and, and medically complex based. So on average, think of, you know, someone, if it's an older adult, you know, multiple chronic conditions, you're going to spend, you know, say 45 minutes of your time, which is not happening in, in, you know, your, your status quo, you know, physician office that I just described earlier, right? You know, that nine and a half minute interaction, but, but let's say it does. So for 45 minutes, you do that, you're going to get paid about 150 bucks. $125. Think about that. That that's and 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 you know, if it's straight Medicare, not even Medicare, Medicare Advantage, straight Medicare, you're, you know, it's 80% of that cost is, is and then the patient is responsible for the other 20%. So so you're not really getting you're not really getting paid for the value that you're providing essentially. And that's why, you know, they use that term value-based care. So it's, you know, fee-for-service versus fee-for-value. And, and I think you, you mentioned, you know, about value-based care. And, and, and I think part of the problem is that value means, you know, different things to different people. 
And I think until we kind of can get to this sort of consistent um, definition of what that is and with all stakeholders, so so not just, you know, the payers or the health plans or or the providers, but also the patients, right? What does it mean to the patient? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's an interesting point you bring up. I never actually thought about that. Um, I think I just took for granted what value means, but I'm looking at it from like the provider lens, right? I'm really not... Right. I'm not looking at it from the patient lens, and that's actually a really good point. Um, and then you mentioned that the normal interaction. So I I want to I want to highlight this because this is a crazy statistic. Uh, is nine and a half minutes usually in a PCP yes. office? So when you're sitting in the office and you're actually there with with the doctor or nurse practitioner, it's yeah. a nine and a half minute interaction. Yeah, and I think that every one of us who's ever been to the doctor it always leaves the doctor be like, oh crap, I forgot to mention that, right? Yeah. Like some of us go in with like sheets, like, you know, a list, well, the good ones yeah. at least, you know, because yeah. they're ready for it. They're like ready right. for that rapid fire question. But even with- Google. Huh? <laughs> because of Google. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, I mean, I've, I've gone to doctors and I come out and I'll be like, I forgot to talk about this. I forgot to talk about this. I forgot to talk about this. Yeah. Um, and that's important though, right? I mean, because that's part of, care right if something is i i mean uh, we 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 are so accustomed to specialized models which i'm not against in any way because i think that not everyone can know everything but we are so focused on just treating just the just what's the problem right now okay you have a problem with your leg okay let's just look at your leg rather than what caused that leg to cause you know we need to do a more holistic thing and that's why like when you mentioned that a typical a, a typical interaction can be like 45 minutes and like in like your model you can get to all those things. It allows the physician, the provider to kind of go through all the things systematically and ask about everything. And you're able to solve issues rather than, oh, okay, here's a script for this. Uh, you know, call us if some anything changes. Yep, yep, 100%. So yeah, I mean, and, and think about this, like when we're in the home, not only not only can we spend more time, but we can see like where this person lives and how they live. Right. So we can see that, you know, we can look in their refrigerator uh, or their freezer. All right. So if you have somebody that has, you know, congestive heart failure, um, your, you know, volume overload is a, is a big deal. Right. And so if you're like high sodium, it's not those those two things don't aren't conducive to each other. And so if you say, oh, you know, how do you like you go to the doctor, right? And you're in your doctor and you're sitting there and let's go back to kind of the traditional status quo. You know, and they'll ask you like, you know, oh, do you are you eating healthy? Oh, yeah, I eat healthy. You know, blah blah blah. But but and we take you know we take their word for for their word. But now we're in the the home, and you know we can pull out that refreezer and we say like they're full of like you know frozen foods that are like heavy with sodium. We can open up their cabinets and see you know what what's in their their medicine cabinet, um, what you know supplements they're taking, like you know, do they have, you know, a lot of, you know, pets, you know, cats and, and, you know, somebody that has asthma, that's probably not the best thing either. You know, do they have a lot of, you know, area rugs? So, you know, fall hazards. So we really can look at, you know, not only do we look at, you know, the, the individual patient, but we also look at, you know, how they live and where they live. Yeah. And I think that's so important. There's always, there's always a story that's always stuck out to me where this, we are so- so the healthcare system loves, not shouldn't say love, I don't like the word. I think a lot of healthcare providers don't, but uh, we, you know, we, we label a patient non-compliant and it's because they're not doing what we told them to do. And this one doctor was, had a diabetic patient and she was older, couldn't really see well, and she had multiple conditions and her, she was adamant she was taking her medication, she was doing the right thing and she doesn't understand why her labs are all off. So... One day, this guy just went to her house. We're like, okay, you know what? I need to go to this house and see what is actually happening. He found out that there was multiple vials of drugs, and they were all kind of mixed in together. And she was taking medication, but she didn't know what she was taking because the doses were all changing because obviously they were trying to figure out what to do. And she had a stockpile of medications, and that's a whole other story of Mm -hmm. we need to take care of. She had a stockpile of medications, and she was just kind of like, Think she she thought she was doing the right thing. So what he did was he spent like more than an hour plus with this lady 
threw out all of her old medications, put everything in like a box for her and, and, you know, and looked around what she was eating, everything, like looked at everything. And he saw that, oh my God, she's really trying, but her home life is not conducive to doing this. And so he was like, if I didn't go there, she probably would have been labeled non-compliant and we would have kept adding medications onto her and nothing would have helped. So like, to your point, there's so much more that happens. I think that we forget in the healthcare world is the home life is more important than what the labs tell us, right? We we only see them for a very small sliver of their life. The rest of it, for me, 98, 90, more than 90% of healthcare is outside of our four walls. But that's the, that's the part that we don't, we don't do, right? We only do that little bit. And that a lot has to do with the amount of time we have. I think most of us would love to do that, but we just don't have the time right yeah. now to do that. And we, and, and, and in like, you know, going back to the fee for service, well, we can't afford to do that, unfortunately. And so the system is built, is not built in, in, in the way that, that it should be. And, and I think you bring up an interesting point when you talk about, you know, this, that, that example you were just talking about, you know, <laughs> it's a crazy mind blowing stat is like over 40% of adults, you know, a age 65 and older, they take five or more prescription medications regularly, which is like triple the amount of, of just two decades ago. And I think as many as 9 million or something like that are on 10 or more meds. And, and it's not really unusual for some patients to take as, as many as 15 to 20 different medications daily. So think, you know, and then you throw in a, a, you know, an ER visit, um, and, and then the doctor there prescribes medication for whatever it is that they're in there for, right? And so then the patient goes, goes home, you know, this older adult goes home and, and, you know, they get their discharge papers and they don't really understand and nobody really tells them and they have, you know, more medications that they have to go get at their pharmacy. And, and, and then you have this sort of the, the perfect description of how you described is you have a cabinet full of medication and, and not really knowing how and when and what do I take? And, you know, so polypharmacy is a huge problem. And, and for older adults specifically, I mean, it causes delirium. I mean, it's so th this care fragmentation that exists is a huge problem in, in healthcare. And so primary care should really be kind of the focus of, of, you know, delivering care and, and integrate it when specialty care is needed. Obviously a primary care physician is, is not, you know, um, going to operate. <laughs> um, but, but really they should be the quarterback of taking care of, you know, patients and instead of, you know, going to specialists. And, and if I use my, my mom as an example is, you know, in 2020 and early COVID, um, she didn't have COVID, but it was right at the beginning and she was in the hospital. I flew down to Miami and, um, she ended up having a, a UTI, um, which could have easily be treated in the home. Um, but it got to the point where it got to, you know, she had sepsis and, and so she was given medication there and she goes home and then she's telling me, well, I got this new uh, blood pressure. Med I don't know. I have this other one. Which one do I take? So it's all these questions of, and, and you know, and I'm in healthcare. So, so at least I can navigate the system, but you know, most people aren't as fortunate and, and she never got to see her, her primary care physician. So she went to see a cardiologist. She went to see a pulmonologist. Um, and, and a lot of it was, you know, virtual telehealth, um, don't really know who she is and, and still the primary care physician, you know, two years later, she hadn't seen. And, and so you have all these different people that aren't really communicating to each other, right? They, they're in silos, each giving medication that we don't even know the impact that it has on, on, you know, like her, her real sort of condition. Yeah, no, polypharmacy is a huge thing. And people are really surprised when I tell them that in pharmacy school, we're taught to get, take people off of medications, not put people on. Yeah. And um, they're like, oh my God, the, the, you guys are just cannibalizing your business. Not really, but um, yeah. And I have so many stories of patients that are on medications and they have no idea why. And, you know, no one really sat down and told, or, or no, and to fairness to their providers, they maybe somebody did tell them, but, you know, there's crazy statistics out there where like almost 50% of people forget their diagnosis when they leave the hospital, yeah. right? So yeah. let alone, you know, this exactly. complicated medication with a huge name that barely we can pronounce, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't expect people to, like, I went to, I have a doctorate degree 
in medications, you know, and it's still hard for me to kind of keep on top of it. How are you going to expect somebody who has no, no baseline knowledge on this to just know everything and then we tell them? And it's just like this. I mean, I don't have to explain to you, but I mean, there's the, this is why like, I, I'm excited about like a hospital at home and all these things and yeah. digital health because we sh- maybe we can come up with a way where we can slowly trickle down information to the patient so they can read a little bit at a time and when they need it. And then they can hopefully get better that way because the way we're doing it now where we just like i work in oncology whenever somebody got diagnosed imagine you just got diagnosed with cancer so that's already scary for you and your mm-hmm. family and then we come in we're talking about all these things again drugs that we maybe barely we can even pronounce and then on top of that we give you like a six inch binder to go home and read <laughs> i mean and it's the best we can do that's the sad part like that is the best we can do with the time we have yeah yeah yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, when I looked at starting Sage, I knew that, you know, the constraints of a brick and mortar model wouldn't work in these areas, in, in, in rural areas. So, you know, we had to think about care delivery in a very different way. But, you know, in all honesty, like brick and mortar clinics were never something I was really interested in anyway. Um, nor was I skewing all the way to the complete opposite of that with virtual care delivery only, you know, the digital health. Um because my experience, you know, my healthcare experience has been in the home. So, you know, we're talking a lot about pharmacy. So home infusion and, and specialty pharmacy to be specific, not, not home care. So, you know, over the last 20 years, I've seen the value of the home as a care setting, not only, you know, from a patient's perspective, but, you know, from the payer's perspective as, as well, you know, as a lower cost care setting, you know, when you compare it to a hospital or an outpatient infusion center. And so, you know, like you, I think we think that the home is the future of most care delivery. And I would argue that the future is already here, like COVID and technology really accelerated that. So, you know, we see the home as as the doctor's office, you know, the clinic, the, the urgent care, um, you know, the, the ER or the hospital for, for low and medium acuity, like you mentioned, the hospital at home, you know, stuff like my mom, like she had a UTI. I mean, that could easily be managed at home you know, COPD exacerbations like cellulitis, things, things like that, that can be easily managed in the home. And and a lot of people, you know, in in the industry agree with us. And I don't know if you've heard this term, you know, when they talk about like hospitals of the future, micro hospitals. Have you heard that? I've heard of it, but I haven't been, uh, I can kind of infer what they mean, but uh, yeah. I'd love to hear what they actually mean, what it actually is. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, when people refer to that term, they, you know, they talk about, Micro hospitals are the hospitals of, of the future. So, you know, smaller footprint and, and within these micro hospitals, basically they're just be doing like, you know, high acuity stuff, stuff that you can't do in the home. So some stuff like neurosurgery, you know, transplant, you know, uh, things like that, that you cannot and really should not do in the home. Um, and so, that, so I think, you know, most care delivery um, and, you know, we're seeing advances with technology and, and hospital home, most care delivery, I think, um, and it's kind of part of our vision and our roadmap, it will be in the home, you know, the, the home, you know, you also, you know, post-acute uh, setting, you know, in the future. Like, I'm super bullish on, on the sniff at home model, which is part of our roadmap. And, um, you know, and, and like finally to kind of the home to tie it up like a, in a nice bow is is like really at survey after survey that the AR, AARP does like every year. It shows that something like 85% of its members that they survey, like if given the choice, would prefer to die in their home. I know no one wants to die in the hospital. I certainly don't. So, you know, palliative care, comfort care, end of life care in the home is also something like we're big advocates of. So, you know, if you look at sort of what my vision is, is like this home-based um, longitudinal and the end care that's super high touch, you know, equitable and, and outcomes based. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think that, that no one would argue with that at all. And I think, um, this is kind of, and this might sound weird to people, but I'm gonna try to say it properly. It's like, we have to kind of go backwards to go forwards. Like healthcare back in the day was a, yeah. in a community setting, you know, you knew your doctor, they knew where you mm-hmm. lived, you know, you would call them up uh, and they would just come to you with like their little doctor bag yeah, and stuff yeah, yeah. and, you know, take care of you, right? They were part of your family, you know, they were invited to your weddings and dinners and things like that. 
And I think that people are missing that and they should be missing that. I think that healthcare is a very personal thing and we are trying to, we're trying to take the humanity empathy out of healthcare right now. Um, and you know, the models like things that you're building and like, you know, value-based care, hopefully they're build, bringing back that empathy because it's allowing us to bring it back, right? It's giving us time to bring back empathy. Empathy takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It, it's not like something we can just be like, okay, cool. Like it's one of those things that to be truly empathetic, you need to spend time with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's people and, and, and it's, and it's, you know, changing the system. Cause I know that the people, you know, I, 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 and I'm not a clinician, so, but, you know, I, I think anybody that gets into it is, is like, they're doing it because they want to do and they want to help people. Right. And, and, and certainly in today's world, you know, they're like, you know, this is not what I signed up for, you know, I want to help people, but, but, you know, I'm spending more time, um, you know, this, this whole corporatization uh, of healthcare, you know, health systems acquiring practices and all that I think is, is I think has contributed significantly to the problem that we're facing today and 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 the care that's being delivered to people but i think people in general just is like like you know even when you describe how it was done in the old day the you know the only time they would call their doctors when they were feeling something's wrong right and so we have to sort of change that mind that there's got to be a little bit of a a shift in that thinking because we need to we actually need to see you more instead of see you less and by seeing you more then we can impact the behaviors and the things that really you know drive a lot of of health care um and so a, a medical care to be specific and so you know it it, it it's going to require like a lot of you know change in mentality from everybody um the people delivering the care and the people receiving the care i agree with you uh with that i think that We've been working in this model for so long. See, you know, see your PCP once a year, you know, call us if you need anything and you're hoping that you never need anything from both sides, yeah. right? Let's be honest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we need to do it. I mean, to, to really take care of somebody with a chronic condition, like hypertension, diabetes, like these conditions that are like, oh, they're dangerous people. Like it, they can kill you. And, mm -hmm. but you need like multiple touch points. You need multiple touch points throughout the year. It's not like a once a year, every three months type of thing. You need to see them and coach them and help them. And then the other thing is like, we need to also work on empowering patients to take care of themselves as well. I think that we've over the years, over the past couple of decades, we've not even, I think since medicine's been around, there's been a very like, do as I say or else, right? But mm -hmm. I think now we're, I'm, I'm glad that we're seeing like, hey, we need to treat the patients holistically. There's other things going on. We might not be always right, even though it's the right answer in the textbook. But in reality, that's not always the right answer. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But the other thing that I want to touch on is like staffing shortages. So like for a model like yours, you're going to need mm -hmm. staff, right? And that's one of the biggest things people fight back on, like hospital at home and things like that. Like how... Do you staff it? I mean, you had mentioned mobile clinics. I think that's a great, um, I think that's great to do th things like that where you're not like physically going to the home, but you're bringing up clinics closer to people. So they're not driving half an hour, 45 minutes an hour. They can only, they only need to drive a couple of, couple of minutes or those, those micro hospitals that you mentioned that, you know, you can build smaller footprints, not have the massive administrative burden, but you know, it's, it's still around when people need it. Yeah, I mean, I think staffing is a real issue for everybody involved, um, and, and but I think it's it's and it's be, it's the result of sort of the system that that's kind of driven people away, and so you know, I think because of our model and and you know, going back to kind of like you talk about like how it was done in the old days and what people really you know signed up and went to school for. Is is to really take care of people. I think our model would is attractive um, to to, fo to folks to to clinicians out there. So so while staffing is a real real problem, I think you know, it, I think it's really at a really you know high level. People associate it with you know just a shortage, and there is a shortage of physicians, no doubt. Um, and as people get older, right, and you know, ten thousand uh, people Americans a day turn sixty five. 
and and that's going to be the the and that continues until 2030 like by by you know 2030 one in five people are going to be older than 65 and by 2030 you know there there's going to be more people that are 85 years and older than there are five-year-olds wow. so think about that so what is our need going to be for 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 clinicians that take care uh, of these patients that have multiple chronic conditions yeah but I, th but I think our model is attractive to people um and you know frankly we have to leverage technology and and even though our clinical model is is geriatrician led and 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 people delivered mostly in person you know hybrid care is here to stay and it's going to play a, a big role in, in our care delivery model um and but we have to be re really thoughtful of, of leveraging you know that and you know leveraging telehealth in a very thoughtful way i think technology in in like so like re remote patient monitoring um things of that nature are, are super super useful and, and i see that more as as something that we would incorporate into ours because they're, they're going to provide information for us and data where we can intervene before there's an acute need yeah um but i think when you think you know when people talk about virtual health um you know I, for you and i and you know my kids and you know i i think it's yeah, that's awesome. I can get on my smartphone and, you know, we're so, we spend so much time on our sm smartphone, whether it's, you know, ordering, you know, Uber Eats, you know, ordering Amazon, you know, getting our groceries delivered. Um, but when you think about older adults, it's, it's not really built for them. Um, you know, most virtual health today was not built with, with older adults in mind, but you know, think, you know, you think of a little small, you know, smartphone and you have somebody that has, you know, vision impairment or, or even, you know, hearing impairment, you know, which is quite common in, in older adults to try and do a virtual health consult on their smartphone or, or even a tablet. So it's, we have to, we've been fortunate enough that we've partnered with a company out of, out of Europe um, that has worked with the, the NHS in providing, you know, virtual health for specifically for older adults. And it's done through what's the second most, I think the second most ubiquitous electronic device after the phone, it's the television. Oh, wow. And so instead of a, you know, uh, whatever, I don't know what size, you know, a, a smartphone screen is, or, you know, a 10 and a half inch, you know, tablet, you know, you can get a 45 inch TV now for, you know, hundred bucks, 150 bucks. I think everybody has at least, you know, a flat screen TV. So um, thinking of it when I, you know, in a very sort of intentional, thoughtful way of, of leveraging technology where it makes sense and when it's appropriate is one of the ways that we can really solve some of this healthcare shortage that exists. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the hybrid model is the key to all of this. Um, we can't see everyone as much as we'd like to, but we can also... We also don't need to see everyone, right? We need to do right. a better job of triaging patients. Like, you know, majority of the patients that come to the ER, I shouldn't say majority, but a good amount of them don't need to be in the ER, right? But if you Absolutely. had like a, if you had a hybrid model, they could see somebody via telehealth and they could kind of do that. The people, and then, you know, that's, that's, you know, leaving beds open for people that really need it. And then that trickles down to the hospital system where now they are not full staff. You know, they, they're not overrun by patients. They're not, you know, housing patients in the hallway, nursing staff, yes. you know, and it, it's just like, it trickles down and it, and it, that's how you reduce burnout is by changing the system and mm -hmm. educating everyone involved, the providers and the patients, right. And then creating a system that helps you do that. And, you know, kind of like what you mentioned, right, right now, we're not incentivized to do that, but hopefully in the future we will be. Yes. hundred percent. Fingers crossed. We're doing our part to do that. Yeah, no, I love it. And, um, one more question before we um, end this interview. What? Yep. So you know you've been in healthcare for a long time, and now you're, yeah. you 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 said in the beginning that you're starting a co company later on in your life. What kind of advice? You know all the stuff that you've learned in your healthcare career, and kind of what you're doing with your company. What kind of advice would you have given yourself when you first started when you stepped foot into the healthcare world? Huh. That's a great question. Um, so if, you know, I think I've been you know fortunate enough where. Um, you know, not uh, being a non-clinician, I've, 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 but I've been involved with, with patients. And I think, you know, really um, having the ability to sort of see 
and hear kind of what their experience is and then seeing it from the provider side as well um, has given me sort of this kind of 360 degree view of healthcare. But even, you know, being in it for, for as long as I've been over 20 years, you know, it's changed so much from when I first started. And then even when I, you know, said I'm starting this company, you know, there's, there's been some, some pivot that, that, you know, we've had that I've had to do in sort of thinking about, you know, how we want to kind of create, you know, this, this business. And so I think the biggest thing is, is like, you know, you have to be um, flexible and, and open to doing things that are really kind of, you know, unique and innovative and outside of like your normal kind of experience. Yeah. And so it's just like, you know, I think we, 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 we're, we get comfortable. So I think the biggest thing is, is like, you know, be open to being uncomfortable. I love that. I, I love that a lot. Cause I think that that is where true growth comes in is when you're uncomfortable, you might not like it then, but later on in life, you will thank yourself a lot, but uh, for, thank you so much for people that want to reach out to you, learn more about Sage health. How could they do that? So, yeah, I'm super like active on LinkedIn and that's how we connected. Um, and I've met some really kind of awesome people there that have been very, very, very helpful and instrumental in sort of some of the kind of changing and thinking that I've had. Um, so you can find me there on LinkedIn, Omar Fernandez, um, Sage health. I'll tell you, so like I mentioned, since we're like really early stage, um, startup, you know, we have a website, but there's not a lot of information on there and, and that's purposeful because, uh, where we are in the process, um, you know, working with, with the payers and trying to get credentialed. Um, the last thing I want to do is, is, you know, Hey, we're out here and then have somebody that, that wants us to kind of deliver care and, and we're not able to, because we're not, you know, yet credentialed with the health plans. Um, but yeah, you know, sageseniorcare.com um, you know, is sort of our, our corporate side and, and, uh, stage health at home. Um, so we're, we're like, you know, we're, we're getting closer to being able to, to start seeing patients. And, um, you know, certainly when, when we're able to do that, we'll make a big splash. Awesome. Yeah. By the time, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, you guys will be up and running. Yeah. Uh, but thank you, Omar, for your time, your generosity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Zane, this was awesome, and I wish you continued success. And I'm going to keep uh, listening and 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 reading about what what you know you're passionate about. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the support.